John chapter 22, 21, excuse me. There's not 22 chapters in John. So. Um, I want to make a comment regarding the, the business conference uh, this coming Wednesday. We, the elders met Saturday. We've had a couple proposals um, that we had looked over. Uh, one of those would be to establish uh, a charter for the American Heritage Girls here. That's a sort of a Christian uh, alternative to the Girl Scouts. Uh, and so we discussed that uh, Saturday. And so we'd like to share more information about that with you as a church. And then also the possibility of having a community garden here, uh, volunteers working that and providing produce uh, for the community and for members alike as well. Uh, and also a way of gathering families together to fellowship around uh, producing that and working together as well. So we'll just share more information about that uh, on Wednesday nights uh, at that business conference. So we encourage you to come for that. I uh, don't know if you watched any this week, but I caught some of the, uh, the coronation uh, in England of uh, Charles. <clears throat> Someone asked me if I'd watched any of that, and I said, yeah. And in fact, I watched the entire <clears throat> coronation in the Westminster Abbey there, I guess. Um, and I was, I, honestly, I was moved to tears, uh, not, not because of the, the splendor of it all, but because of the liturgy uh, that was used in the coronation. And I kept thinking to myself, I just preached a message on uh, the king on trial. And then I saw all those accolades being put upon a man. But even in doing that, uh, with the Anglican liturgy and revolved in coronations, there was so much scripture cited there. And all that kept coming to my mind, given, given not only Great Britain, but uh, America, given how far we've departed from our Protestant theological foundations, all those liturgies were just empty words. And I kept thinking in my mind of Christ saying of all of that spectacle, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that just seemed to be what it was. Uh, king or no king, uh, obviously Europe has gone the way of progressivism and the U.S. is following very closely and we're not far away from even already uh, the words of our own constitution being used in the same way. They're just empty words, they're nostalgic, they have something to do with tradition and they're respected in some way but they no longer guide. We no longer believe as a nation the principles upon which um, the Judeo-Christian principles upon which that document was built. And so as we see Europe go, uh, the Lord, uh, I think America will go unless the Lord intervenes with revival. And that's part of what was on my heart in the message this morning from John. Uh, I, to, to Brother Mike Brown's honor, I've alliterated this for you this morning. Uh, Matt was telling me Mike's the master at that, but I don't do it very easily. It doesn't come easy to me, but this morning, if you want to write this down from John 21, it will be set apart, or you could say sanctified, sifted, secured, and summoned. And Brother Mike, when I did that, I thought my Fruitland professors would be proud. Uh, I think I made like a D in that class. But, but I'm really thinking about the life of Peter. That's, uh, you could almost put Peter's life into that category. There are lots of events that happened in between. And so I just wanted to share that with you this morning. Let's begin in chapter 21 of verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing but when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So he said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. 
So when Simon Peter heard this, it was that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he had been stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now, John says, the third time that Jesus manifested to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now he said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. By the way, let me insert, that's what, those are the words he heard at the beginning. And here he hears them as Jesus is departing, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them and the one who had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who, uh, the one who said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, the saying went out among the brethren that the disciples would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also other, many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather together as the body of Christ. Lord, I thank you for what's represented even in this room today. You have called us all from different walks of life. Father, you have called us out of darkness into light, and we share a common faith today. And it all surrounds and orients itself to, to Christ. And so, Father, we pray that his name would be exalted here today, that we might learn the lessons from the truth, from the scriptures. And, Lord, I pray that we might be reaffirmed in our own devotion to Christ as well. Lord, we do pray for revival, although... Some of us believe, I'm one of them that believes that your judgment is already upon our nation. But Father, we pray for a merciful hand that you might even stay that hand and bring revival that we might once again be a nation that calls out to the nations to come to Christ, the true King. So help me this morning, Lord, in the speaking and help those who are gathered here in the hearing that we might behold Christ in his glory. We ask in his name, amen. So I just started beginning to think about Peter's life in these last moments of Christ's dialogue with him. And then the idea of sanctifying, which I just simply mean by that, the literal meaning of the word to be set apart. And it's true in Matthew chapter 14, you don't have to turn with me there, but, or not Matthew 14, but chapter 4. This was Peter's calling, or the disciples' calling in general, but... In verse 18, Jesus had gone out preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was following his temptation, the beheading of John. Uh, so Jesus is setting out now on his mission. In verse 18, now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. 
Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Let me pause there. That's what they were. Uh, We have a tendency to equate who people are with what they do. But it's interesting to me, he says, they were fishermen. That's what they did. And that's what they were known as. And they perceived themselves as fishermen. Uh, people ask uh, me sometimes, before I was a, in ministry, uh, they'd say, what do you do? And I'd say, I was a carpenter. And they'd talk to somebody else and they'd say, have you ever, you ever met Larry the carpenter or, or the builder or whatever that was? We associate ourselves. And so did they as well. They were fishermen. But Jesus says to them as he's passing by, he sees them there in the boats with the nets, and he says to them, follow me, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on further, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So clearly, Uh, This is the setting apart of Peter. We know from other texts that Jesus says to them, I chose you, you didn't choose me, I chose you. In John 17, Jesus says, they were the fathers, they were yours, and you gave them to me. So Peter, from this point, perhaps from eternity past, had been set apart unto, unto this life that he's living. It wasn't a happenstance, it wasn't Peter's response here wasn't the decisive factor. It is that God had called them and appointed them as apostles to have this specific role. So so this is their setting apart. And that's important because that's guiding the unfolding of their lives. Uh, If it's just contingent upon them and it's all decisive upon their reactions and their strength and all these things, then then it is uncertain. It is not certain that they are going to be the ones that are going to be the apostles. We have to to find someone else. Uh, This is their calling. This is where they are called apart, and particularly in this context, Peter. In Matthew 16, verse 15 through 19, you remember the confession In regards to Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And they give him an answer, some prophet or someone else, John the Baptist even, or some some prophet. Then he points to them directly and says, who do you say that I am? So that's to the apostles themselves, the disciples. And out of that number, Peter takes the initiative and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And so Jesus says something I think is significant, but he says, blessed are you. That is, a, that is a blessed position or condition that you are in, therefore, Peter, because it is not the flesh and blood that has provoked this confession from you, this realization, it is my Father in heaven. That is the blessedness of that state. And so it is set apart by having had revealed to him the identity of Christ and therefore confessing this truth. And Peter himself asserts that, Mark 14 through 27, Peter says this, even though all men fall away, yet will not I. In fact, he says later, if I have to die with you, I will. Now I wrote this, there is no question regarding Peter or any of the apostles' calling. No question at all about that. No theological questioning, no doctrinal questioning. That is clear in Scripture. Nor, I think, is there any reason to suspect that their resolve, and I say the other apostles because they said the same things, but that their resolve was anything but sincere. I think sometimes, especially when we get to the denials, we think that somehow what was displayed in the the sifting that I'll speak of in a moment was that Peter wasn't sincere. I don't think that's the case. Peter was absolutely sincere. So much so that he drew a sword and took off a servant, Malchus's ear, when they come to arrest Jesus at the garden. That sounds pretty resolved and serious to me. So if you you say that Peter's denials revealed that somehow Peter was insincere in his professions, I think you're in error. I think he was absolutely convinced and resolved in his own heart that he absolutely would follow Christ all the way to death. And the other disciple says, yeah, us too. 
And I don't have any reason to believe that they were insincere in that conviction. No more, by the way, than I would have to to disbelieve your expressions similar of your sincerity today. Nor should you suspect my assertions as insincere. I think as every Christian, we say things like this and we are sincere. Neither should we suspect that the Lord foretold of Peter, uh, what the Lord foretold of Peter, Peter's future was indicative of merely a possibility. When Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men, he doesn't say, follow me and I'll see if I can make you fishers of men. In fact, the, the command is an imperative, follow me. And you might say, well, he was contingent upon him following Jesus. But I'm saying, no, his following Jesus was contingent upon the word of Christ to follow me. That was the decisive factor in Peter following. And in Peter's following, there was a certainty that what had been foretold of Peter, that that would come true in his life. So there's no no doubt to doubt their sincerity, no reason to doubt their sincerity. And there is no reason to doubt that what Christ had foretold of him would come to pass. So those are two, for me, rock-solid realities that I have to view the life of Peter in, in light of. And here's my point of application for us today. Many of us today might express a similarly, similarly sincere devotion to Christ. In fact, I would expect you to. If I said later what Jesus says to you, if I said to you this morning, every believer, do you love Jesus? Most of us, if not all of us, would say, yes, I love you, Lord, just as Peter did. We would confess that we love the Lord. If someone said, if I said to you today, if you had at the risk of losing your job this week, will you, will you yield and follow Christ? And most of us, even with trembling, would say, yes, I, I love Christ and I could not deny Christ at the expense of my job. I think most Christians, devout, serious Christians, would assert with sincerity that they would not continue in a career where they were required to sin against their God and you would say it with true sincerity and I wouldn't doubt it I wouldn't have any reason to doubt that you were sincere what Peter however did not realize and what perhaps we in our own resolve do not realize is that the roots of that resolve may in part be rooted in shallow soil in the strength of our flesh in our own observations and conclusions and reasonings and personal character. He, Peter, might have been alerted to that vulnerability had he heard carefully, carefully the words of Christ. Remember Jesus at his calling and, at the, and his inquiry as to who you said I was. Jesus says to him clearly, Peter, you are blessed. Why? Because flesh and blood did not reveal it to you. You didn't come to the conclusion that I am the Christ, the Son of God, by the power of your reason and observations and all the, and your character and your decisiveness and all the other things that are attributes of your character, Peter. They are not the source or the decisive factor in bringing you to that conclusion. There is something that is, however, and that is my Father in heaven. To me, had Peter heard those words carefully, he might have been guarded against relying upon the strength of his flesh. He might have been warned that there is this propensity in me to rely upon my strength. But Jesus tells him first and foremost that his exalted position, which he says in that very passage, upon this, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. In that exalted place, Peter, you, didn't, you will not arrive there by the power of your own strength. It will be by this same divine blessing from the Father. Peter might have been warned as well when he said to him, I will make you fishers of men. I will do that. Follow me, the imperative initiates your actions to follow me. And then in the following of me, I will transform you into being one who goes out and fishes and brings in the catch of men. No more fish for you, Peter. That's over in your life. 
Now I am going to be the decisive factor in making you effective in regards to the preaching of the gospel. So both times in both of those statements, it seems to me that it was evident in the statement itself, if Peter had been hearing and listening carefully, that Peter was not to embark upon this relying upon his own strength. But just like us all, he does. And God, Christ is merciful in many ways. It is transformative. It is a sanctifying life of his with Christ. It is Christ bringing him to this place where he will indeed be the fulfillment of what Christ has said of his life. But there is a process. Flesh and blood. So what, what in the end, there were many, but what in the end was the instrument of that sort of purification or that sanctification? And I touched on this in the message regarding sifting, but that was the instrument in Luke 22, 31 through 33, 32, and also involving Peter's denials. I won't preach that sermon again, but essentially it was Satan's demand. So Satan demanded, Jesus says of Peter, I want to sift him. By sifting, this is what I was thinking, by sifting, Satan desiring the defeat of Peter intended to expose Peter's weakness actually accomplished what would be necessary for Peter to become what Christ foretold of him. Satan's design was to, by demonstrating how weak the flesh of Peter was, he would become discouraged to the point of giving up and not following Christ any longer. So there was a sifting that had to take place to do this in his life. I wonder this and this was sobering for me as I reflected upon this. I wonder how often Satan takes note of our bold assertions. It's interesting to me that he requested to sift Peter. Why? Well, Peter's the one who made the bold confession. Peter's the one who said, though all others fall away, I won't do it. I'll follow you all the way to the cross. It's as if Satan said, oh, you will, will you? I want Peter. Give me Peter. I'm going to expose the weakness of Peter and the other disciples recognizing his strength will recognize they themselves have not the strength and they'll all go away from you, Christ. Give me Peter. And Christ says, essentially, I have granted him permission, Peter. Here's what I think. I wonder how often Satan takes note of our bold assertions about our resolve and our devotion to Christ. And how often were he not restrained, would he by sifting expose our reliance upon the flesh? It just was a reminder to me to be, to be remindful, to be mindful when we make those assertions of where the strength to live those assertions out and the resolve to hold fast to those resolves come from. We've been studying Jonathan Edwards and one of the things I'm convinced about his resolutions is that he was cognizant, mindful of his absolute dependency upon the Lord to honor those resolutions that he found that were consistent with the truth of God's word. It, was, it would be a dangerous thing for Jonathan Edwards to assert those things in ignorance of what happened to Peter. It would have been a dangerous thing. But I wonder how often that we make such bold assertions. How much we may, without making them verbally, saying them in our minds. Watching another Christian fall and say to ourselves, I would never fall to something like that. Not me, though all other men do, not me. And I'd say, why do you think you would be immune? And you would say, because I love Christ. I love Christ. I'm not going to abandon Christ or deny Him in any way. I love Him. And I wonder if Satan hears that, and if it were not for the restraining grace of God, if we might not be turned over for a sifting ourselves. And how much of that assertion and that confidence and that resolve might be found in our lives to be rooted in shallow soil. That's exactly what I think was being exposed in Peter through the sifting. But thankfully, we come out to the other one, which is Peter is secured here. And you could expand this through, through a couple of chapters, but I'm picking up in chapter 20, verse 19 through 21. 
This is after the denials, after he wept. Uh, here's something I thought about this week in regards to Peter. I think, we're not told specifically, we're told in the gospel, so my assumption is that Peter, having denied Christ three times, the bold Peter, was aware that Judas, who betrayed Christ, took his own life. And I wonder, I was just trying to put myself in that position for a minute, and I'm thinking to myself, he took his life for betraying Christ, and I'm not much better than that. When I had the opportunity, after boldly proclaiming him, to confess him in a dangerous situation, I cowered away and denied him. I am not much worthy, more worthy of living than Judas was. And the, and the encroaching inclination to maybe I should take my life. I am not worthy. That gets close to home. When the, when the one who has the same position and title that you have, apostle, who betraying Christ, takes his own life, it ought to come close to Peter and his own realization that I'm not a whole lot better than that. In fact, I may be worse because I openly and proudly asserted my devotion and denied him. I might be as worthy of dying as Judas himself. And were it not for the providence of God and the grace of God, likely Peter would have taken the same course of action. Likely. But God is gracious and Christ is as well. In verse 19 of chapter 20, So when it was evening of that day and the first day of the week and when the doors were shut, when the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And here's reminiscent of what he said to Peter, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. I'm saying it's similar in that the keys to the kingdom. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. I love Thomas's response. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. In Luke chapter 22, whenever Jesus predicts Peter's denial after having been sifted Jesus tells him in that very prediction of his certainty of his security when he tells him I have prayed for you yes I have I have permitted your sifting by Satan and it's going to be brutal and you're going to be pushed right up to the doorstep of being exhausted of your very life. But my prayer for you is bringing you through. Your faith will hold. And when once you have returned, that's a foregone conclusion. When that happens, then you, in that strength, go strengthen your brothers. Peter was secured with the betrayal and it was secured not because of his actions, is my point. It's because he was set apart from the beginning to that end. And the sifting was all a part of preparing Peter for the end for which God had called him to do. He would become that apostle. He would become that one so central to the foundations of the church among the other apostles. He would become all of these things. But not by his own strength or by his own wisdom, but by the power of God bringing, a, bringing the fullness of Christ and the power of the Spirit about in his life and that's where I think we need to learn so much from Peter so much from Peter's life I have prayed for you when once you turned again strengthen your brothers and then finally comes the summons uh, it's more than that uh, it was alliterated convenient 
So I captioned it that, but it's more than that in verses 1 all the way through 23. But I love this narrative. Notice as well that there is, a, there is some things that unfold here in chapter 21. After these things, Jesus manifesting himself uh, again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. He manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter, all the others there. Uh, verse 3, Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. Now I've heard this preached as though uh, Peter's done. You know, he's going to go back to his old ways. And I think there's an element of truth in there. But Peter, Peter was just in the room where Christ appeared and he said, peace to you. And we're not told in Scripture that there was a dialogue there. But, but obviously there was no severe, stern, wrathful rebuke of Peter's denials in that presence. In fact, there was word come from one of the women that Christ had specifically said, go tell my disciples and Peter, I will see them in Galilee. So there's an expectation to see Peter. Well, Jesus appears, Peter's there, and there's no vicious rebuke of his denial. So I don't think Peter is, is running away now from God, got back to the fishing boats. I think Jesus has appeared. He hasn't appeared for a little while. And there's, this, this, there's a pause here. They don't know exactly what to do. They've seen the risen Lord. They know He's not dead and in the tomb. But I don't know what this means. I've gone through this process and I don't know if I'm disqualified or if, if His words about me are no longer true. I don't know what to do here. So what do I do? What do you do? You go back to what's familiar. It's a comfortable place. Peter spent his life, I think, as a fisherman. He lived along the Sea of Galilee, James and John the same way. Whenever, whenever the calling of God, I think, seems challenging or threatening or too difficult, our, our go-to place is the place where we are the most familiar. I've shared with Hope before, sometimes going and building something is a, is a reprieve for me because the demands of following Christ and being ready to preach and to lead and to make decisions and, and to understand, as Brother Travis shared Wednesday night, that the teachers will be held to a stricter scrutiny. The weight of that gets to be a lot, and I want to escape sometimes. And you know where I go? Go make something. Go build something. Do a bowl. Paint a picture. Build, a, build, a, build something. And in that environment, I'm completely, I don't have to think about things. It's natural to me, and it's my comfy place. And I think that's exactly what the disciples did here. We don't know what happens next. We don't know what happens. We've seen Christ crucified. We all fled away. Peter himself denied him three times. Now we've seen him alive again. Even in that, Thomas doubted and Jesus appeared again to reaffirm Thomas's faith there and then make a mild rebuke and says that blessed are those who are not seeing like you do yet will be believing Thomas. And now he's gone again and they're in this pause. So they go fishing. But just as when I go to that place, so they found as well in verse 3 says they fished all night they went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing <laughs> just like when I go back to that comfortable place it's not satisfying anymore uh, for me the building used to be a reprieve and a, and a satisfaction and other things that I did I could get away from the strain and go experience some satisfaction in those things but they tried that and what happened they didn't catch a single fish so now the old familiar place is no longer satisfying. Here's what I think. I think that's because you're fishers of men, I said. You're not going to be fishers of fish anymore. Even if you could catch some, you're not going to be satisfied with those because I have made you fishers of men. And you can't go back to what you made you. You can't be what you want to be if follow me and be what I want you to be. So the Lord, especially in my own life, He's provided for a dissatisfaction in those things. I can find a temporary joy in it, and I do. But I know from my own taste now that if I abandoned this route and went back to that, it would be dissatisfying immediately because that is not what God has called me to be doing. And I think that's what's happening with Peter here as well. Notice in this as well in verse 5 and 6, there is a reminder, number one, of the futility of that retreat. In verse 5, he says, Children, have you 
you, you do not have any fish, do you? I love the phrasing of that. He doesn't ask them, hey, did you catch anything? I read one commentator that said that's a normal question to ask when people are fishing. No, I, I never say you didn't catch anything, did you? Because I know the guy I say that to is going to get irritated with me. What I will do, though, however, is I'll say, are you catching anything? And he'll say yes or no, and we're good. Jesus confronts them and points out the futility of their night's labor. You didn't catch anything, did you? <laughs> I mean, that's a different approach, right? And I think he's pointing out the futility of what you're trying to do, men. I'm, I'm coming back, and I'm coming back in a very specific way. And I'm going to give you a commission here in a moment and send you out just as I have been sent into the world. And you might have thought you found a momentary reprieve and some familiar, in a familiar place, but I'm telling you that that is an act of futility. It will not be satisfying, and you will not be effective or productive doing that anymore. You hadn't caught anything, have you? I almost think he could have said, and by my providence, I'm making sure you will not unless I command it. You're not going to catch anything operating according to your own comforts. I think also there is a reminder in verse 6 of their past calling. Remember, he said to them, I will follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And in that particular incident, he got on the boat and was preaching. And he said to Peter, push your boat out into the water. And they went out into the water. And Jesus told them to cast their nets over to the side of the boat and they would get a great catch. And they did. And they hauled them all in and the nets were about to break. And Peter falls before him and says, Depart from me. <laughs> Depart from me. I am a sinner. And here again he says to them, You had not caught anything, have you? And it's almost as if he's saying, Let me remind you of something. Throw your net on the right side of the boat. And they've been fishing all night, and with the width, the width of a boat, maybe, maybe 10 foot at the most, maybe 6 or 8 feet, within the width of a boat, they bring in a whole draft of fish that they barely can hold in the net. And the reminder was, I make you fruitful and productive. You don't do that. And it's almost as if he's calling their mind back to the beginning of their life with Christ and His power to make them productive and effective. So that past calling, I think even the bread and the fish themselves, when they finally get all these things to shore, they come to shore to find out that Jesus is already eating fish. <laughs> He's already got fish and bread and a charcoal fire there. He's already got everything he needs. And I can't help, uh, it says he comes and he serves that or he breaks that as well, invites them to enjoy that. And I couldn't help but thinking about the breaking of the bread and the 5,000 fed. One fish and a few loaves and Jesus fed the multitudes. And so again, there's a reminder here of their life with Christ. As if he's saying to them, don't you remember these things? I was working, I was sanctifying, I was setting you apart unto what I am called you to do. This sifting was all a part of that. I am making of you fishers of men. I am making, that's the point. And finally, to a humble devotion, and that's where I want to conclude this morning roughly in verses 15 through 17. So when they had finished eating there, Jesus came and took the bread and the fish likewise and gave to them. And John tells us that was the third manifestation of Christ after his resurrection to his disciples. And then this dialogue begins between Peter and Christ. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, turns to Simon Peter, assuming, excuse me, in the presence of all the disciples there. And he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I read one commentator uh, su suggest that he was referring to all the fish he had just caught. You love me more than these fish? <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's it. I think he was referring to the other disciples. Peter, you said in the presence of these same men, even if everybody falls away, I won't. Do you love me more than these? You said you did. Do you love me more than these? Jesus uses the word here, agape. And in every response, by the way, that Peter responds, he uses phileo, which is a different word in the Greek for love. Uh, I read this was interesting, but the comparison in our English language, someone has said, may have been this. It's as if Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I'm fond of you. 
And he says again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I'm, I'm fond of you. And then the last time he says, Peter, are you fond of me? And then G Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know I'm fond of you. And that was striking to me because that almost suggests to me that the sifting had accomplished its purpose. Peter's not prepared on his own strength now to make such a bold assertion. He knows now that if I stand upon my own resolve and my own personal strength and say, Yes, Lord, you know I love you unconditionally. Even if my earlier statement just demonstrated that it was not in fact unconditional. Because in the fear of the moment, I denied even knowing you. I dare not ever again say that I love you unconditionally. I yield and let you be the judge. Lord, I am deeply fond of you is my best assertion. Something's changed in Peter. Something's changed incredibly in Peter. Like I said, I don't doubt his sincerity when he said, I love you. I don't doubt if, G if Peter would have said here, I love you, agape you. I would have expected that. In fact, I think it took a great humility to acknowledge before the other disciples in the face of a direct question from Christ, do you love me, Peter, unconditionally? And Peter to have the courage in that moment and the humility to say, Lord, the best I can say is that I am deeply fond of you. But I dare not presume more than I, am, than I ought to. And he's throwing himself now, I think, on the Lord's judgment. And the Lord, notice, do you love me more than these? Then the second one is, do you love me, agape me, Peter? And now, now you're dropping on these all together. Now we're not comparing to the other disciples. I'm not asking if you love me more than they love me. Now I'm asking you point blank, do you love me, period. No comparisons. What are your convictions, Peter? And again, Peter does not say, yes, Lord, I agape you. He says to him, again, I am fond, or I have phileo, a brotherly love for you. And only the third time does Christ relent here, and I think in mercy he responds to Peter in his own vernacular. Peter, are you fond of me? Do you love me with that phileo sort of love? And Peter here, interestingly enough, doesn't say, yeah, that's it. He acknowledges here, Lord, you know all things. I think Peter wanted to say, Lord, I agape you, but he dared not do that because he still had the taste of his own bitter denials of Christ and the weeping and the encroachment of Judas himself, suicide in regards to a, a similar sin. And he dared not take into his mouth such a bold, fleshly assertion when he might ought to have done that in that moment. He dared not do that. And that tells me that the sifting had accomplished the purpose for which it was allowed. Peter was not going to be relying on his strength ever again. He dared not. You know, it's interesting to me. I thought when I was thinking of this. Remember when Peter and John in the book of Acts come to the temple and there's a man there crippled begging for alms and all that. Peter walks by and, and, the, and he says, you know, alms, alms for the poor. And Peter stops and beholds him and he says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give thee. Stand up and walk. That's a statement that was not resting in strength of Peter whatsoever. I don't have silver. I don't have gold. The implication is I don't have the personal resources to produce what you want. But I got something better than that. I have Christ. So in the name of Christ, get up and walk. And the power was overwhelming, and he did, in fact, do that. That is a different Peter. That is a different Peter. Notice as well, there is a manifestation of this sort of love as well. Because he says in each one, there's another play on words. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says to him, tend my lambs. 
There's some play on these words as well. There's poimen there, the word we get our word shepherds or pastoring from. But then there's the idea of pasturing, feeding and the practical things with the little lambs. And then you got the, the next section he uses there, shepherd the sheep, has the idea of an overall supervisory oversight of those sheep. And then he goes back to feed the sheep as well. So there's the caring and the tender care. This is a description of Peter's summoning. Peter Love me, depend upon me for your love for me, and, and go out now and in demonstration of that love, take the, the comprehensive oversight of discipling. The little bitty lambs that are weak and need to be fed and nurtured, the strong sheep who need to be guided and corrected, and all the sheep all together. Peter, the weight now of the church is upon your ministry. And you couldn't have fulfilled it, Peter. Relying upon your own strength. And that explains the entirety of Peter's life. Now Peter is equipped to go into the New Testament church era. And you can read the book of Acts and see how that unfolds. Does he, does he finally, has he arrived at perfection? No, no. In fact, Paul calls him out later on. In fact, he sees all the Jews coming to town and Peter kind of cowers back again and he wants to act like a Jew when the Jews are around. When they're around, he's okay. Not around, he's okay with the Gentiles. And Paul calls him out and says, that's not consistent, Peter. So Peter didn't win the battle himself. He had to, I think, all of his life keep fighting that inclination to make these bold assertions and these activities upon his own strength. And then finally, to close, Jesus tells him something I think would be stunning, but in verse 18 he tells him, having learned his lesson in some ways and having come to realize that he had a weakness inherent in his flesh, that he was never dependent on the power of his flesh but upon Christ. And he says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, not too much longer, not too much earlier, but when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. John tells us that Jesus said this signifying by what death Peter would die, would glorify God in his death. And when he had spoken this, he said to him all the way back to the very beginning of his calling, follow me, follow me. And I love it that Peter, even here, Peter begins to think about that. And there is a general calling for the church to follow Christ, for every disciple of Christ to be a follower of Christ. And Peter seems to start comparing himself now to, to others. Well, what about John? He points out John. He sees him apparently at some distance and says, well, what about him? And Jesus simply says to him, what does it matter to you if he remains until I come? And then he reasserts, you follow me. John tells us that Jesus wasn't saying he wasn't going to die. He's just simply pointing out to Jesus that there is a corporate responsibility for the disciples of Christ to follow him. But let me say this with all my heart. For every one of you individual Christians in this room and for me, there is a specific calling of Christ that says to you, no matter what they're doing, you follow me. Now that may put you in the company of others with whom he has done that, which is exactly what's happening here at Diamond Hill. I am in the companies with others who are obeying the individual command that he follow. They follow Christ. He or she follow Christ. But the highest priority in my life is for me to follow Christ. For Peter, Tradition says it was on an upside-down cross execution. For John, it was perhaps old age on Patmos. But in either case, every man, every woman must follow Christ according to where Christ is leading us. God is gracious that most of that is done in the company of the body of Christ and in the local church family. And what a wonderful blessing that is. But there may come a time when you stand alone and you're called to follow Christ in to the, to the executioner's sword alone. But in that moment, you're never alone. You have the entire cloud of witnesses that have followed Christ all of their days. And I'm convinced that in those moments, if need be, God will do like he did Stephen. He will give us a glimpse to the, into the heavens and we'll see the sun and we'll be encouraged in that moment. And so this is a conclusion we could preach a lot on the Gospel of John, but this is where I wanted to conclude with John today. I have a real concern and a real phobia almost of the 
of the deceitful nature of my flesh. Here's the way it works. If I am successful and am gaining in the knowledge of God, it seems, and in, the, in sanctification, in holy living, it's so easy along the way for something to encroach upon at that point to where now I have somehow acted in such a way as to provide for a greater acceptance with God and therefore produce in me a greater confidence. And if I follow that road really far, somewhere way down the line, I'm operating with a great boldness for the kingdom of God, quote unquote, according to my own estimation of my success in holy living. That is not what I want to do. Whether I live the next five years holy, whether I live the next 25 years pursuing Christ and pursuing holiness in mind and in heart and in life, if I live the rest of my days doing that and at the end of my day make a bold assertion, I pray that it will not one iota rest upon whatever gains I have recognized through the grace of God to that end. I hope in that day as well as in this, if I make the assertion, it is mindful of the mercy and the grace and power of Christ to bring to pass what He has called me to be. And it ought to be that way for every believer. That's what I think Paul means when he says, let no one think more highly of himself than he ought, but soberly according to the gifts given each one. So the warning is be mindful of bold assertions and ask where are they rooted? Where are they really rooted? And will they survive the siftings? I think we'll all find that out ultimately. Stand with me this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the life of the apostles and particularly in this end of the gospel of John, the life of Peter. And Lord, there's so much to be learned. We are not, most of us would not be say that we are so bold and aggressive as a Peter was, but in our own way, when it comes to our tendency to rely upon the flesh, we are very much like Peter and very much like the other disciples as well. And so Father, I just pray that as sincere as we are in our devotions and our expressions of love for you today, that you would help us, Lord, expose for us where that is rooted in its truth. And Lord, I pray all this to the end that Christ would be glorified, that he would make us fishers of men, not that we would make ourselves fishers of men on his behalf or for his sake, but that he would make us that. And I pray that it's so in our lives this morning as we take a few moments. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.